There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Is there anyone here, raise your hand if I haven't told you about A, my buddy's brother who's carrying the deer rack on his backpack. I haven't told you about this? No. No. Okay. Raise your hand if I haven't told you about this man-eating tiger and uh, this man-eating tiger in India. I told you guys all about no, it. Yeah, you we, told heard, us we heard that one, yeah. Can you, uh, can, can we act like I didn't tell you? Yeah. Okay. My buddy's brother. He doesn't want me to say who it is, but it's a guy that's been on this podcast. And I've met his brother. I've fished perch with his brother. Um, kills a Columbia blacktail in Washington State. And I haven't spoke with him directly about it, but he kills a blacktail in Washington State. And he affixes the rack, the skull and antlers to his backpack. And this is one of those things that you hear about it being a no-no. Like, and we'll even tie orange flagging or, or tie a game vest or whatever around antlers when you're doing it. But you're always like, man, what are the chances that that would happen? That being, what are the chances that someone would mistake it for a live animal? Well, he got shot at. So it was such a close call that the guy shot a hole through his backpack. Whoa, dude. Wow. Too close. The game warden hauled this dude off in handcuffs. As he should. Jeez. 
shot a hole through his backpack with a high-powered rifle, thinking, not only thinking that it was a live buck, but also that he was aiming at its lungs. Or he didn't get that far into the thinking. Horrifying. What Does anybody else have a story, like themselves or someone that they know closely, that that's happened to like where someone shot at a sound or I know people that got shot moved. in Pennsylvania turkey hunting. Really? I know there's three guys standing together talking after working a bird and all three of them got hit. What? What did the person think he was shooting at? Wow. A turkey, I guess. Mistook three mugs for a turkey. Yep. And knew it was a gobbler. <laughs> Not a hen. <laughs> That's what I, I don't, don't know what he was thinking. But that's what I don't get. I about. don't. I don't think there's a mistaking. It's a. It's a. There's movement. I'm gonna shoot and and figure it out later. Is it that or is it like buck fever sort of thing where you're just like so keyed in that like anytime you see like a rack or movement, you're like, oh, I gotta shoot because yeah, that's, that's just, what I'm out here for. That's just too. In this case, you've got a rack that's pointed the wrong direction. Yeah, from what it's moving too. If it's on a backpack walking away, buck of a lifetime, man. Inverted. It was an inverted buck. <laughs> it's just still. Blows my mind. That stuff happens. It's disgusting. What are they thinking? There's more lurid details about this individual, but I don't want to give them away. Not lurid details about the victim, but lurid details about the perpetrator. He had some other things going on? Mm-hmm. What does the victim say? I've, I've only, I'm friends with the victim's brother. Mm-hmm. And I've fished with the victim, the near victim. No, the victim. I've fished with the victim, but I'm not tight with him. Um, okay, the man-eating tiger. This is kind of amazing, man. If a bear, if a, if a grizzly here scratches someone up, that's a dead bear quick. This tiger in India killed 13 people before they were able to kill the tiger. Whittled away at 13 people, and they finally... Lure, they they got it to expose itself and lured it in using obsession clone. No, thirteen people. That, you're serious about old? This? Yeah, about the cologne? Old obsession had like an extract, had some kind of like civet extract or something in it, and they find that it works really good as a tiger lure. Obsession, obsession. <laughs> yeah, Tell me, you know more about this, and we can take this one one step farther. No, I was just reading about this. I've heard that tigers have like a vengeance. For people, they'll remember people sent. They'll remember, like they'll have it out, and they'll. You guys speak up, Warren. Yeah, you guys got to get. You guys got to get tighter. We're trying to share a mic, but we're doing the two finger thing. But you sound like a dude yelling at a up at a at a <laughs> seminar. All right. Well, I'm going to get real uncomfortably <laughs> close to Chris and tell you that I, you I believe that uh, what I've heard is that tigers hold vengeance against people. I think that comes from one book called Tiger. The Tiger? Yeah. By John Valent? Yeah. Who That's wrote one of the... Book. Really, you know what? You want to read a real book. Read his book, The Golden Spruce. Mm. I have not read That's that That's a writing some bitch right there, man. He's good. But there's certain books that come out. It's like Malcolm Gladwell writes a book. Then for the next six months, you got to have people tell you, stuff that they, tell you stuff that they read in there and act like that they didn't read it there. You know what, actually, the way to think about that is, and you learn later, like, where it's all coming from. 
But since that book came out, I've had 50 people tell me that about Tigers. Not to take away from it, because he's a hell of a writer. What was his name again? John Vellant, I think. Yeah, we've emailed. V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T. Dude, the Golden Spruce is about a giant Golden Spruce and the man who sawed it down and why he sawed it down. And he did not saw it down for the reasons you think he would have sawed it down. It's about an act of, like, eco-terrorism. It's a good-ass book. Uh, In Florida. Guy, you know about this? Yeah. 17-foot python. Dude just got a 120-pound, 17-foot, 5-inch long python. He paid for it, too, didn't he? Didn't bite him several times. When he was wrestling with it, bit him up a little bit. Awesome. I, I can't even wrap my head around a snake that big. Me neither. He can wrap his head around you. God. I can't wrap my head around why you would want to catch it. I catch it after I shot its head off. There's bounties on him. De- I guess not alive. I don't know why he wanted to catch it alive. Just a lot cooler to roll in with a snake that's alive. 120 pound alive snake. <laughs> it makes more of a statement, man. Yeah. To have a 125 pound, 120 pound alive snake. Just giant pythons, man. 17 feet's long, man. Kind of getting sick of those pythons. Imagine the tree stands you were sitting in. Dude, yeah. It'd go from the top of that tree stand to the bottom. That is insane. That's so scary. And weigh as much as Ridge Pounder. Just about. What are they eating? Just anything. Small mammals. They've eliminated a size class of mammals in the Everglades. Jeez. That's what our buddy Robert Abernathy, who worked on some python projects and whatnot, he's a, he's a biologist. A couple of interesting things he was telling us about is they've like eliminated like the, everything, like grinners, raccoons, like a whole size class of like mid-sized mammal. They, they just wipe them out. And he told me they're working on this stuff to try to test how far north pythons can go. And th- they can't penetrate the frost line. Well, that's good. So, like, if you live in, you know, yeah, man, they're, they're not gonna, they're our, not going to be up in the Carolinas. They're not going to be up in Alabama. Our squirrel populations and our cottontail populations would be in danger. Yeah, there's no safe place to be a grinner anymore. Does everybody? We, ch- we chased after a grinner last night, didn't we? We did. We didn't come up with. He it. gave us a slip. <laughs> Does everybody know what a grinner is? Is that a possum? That's a possum. That's what Doug Duran calls them grinners. Speaking of getting mauled up. Now, this is something we don't know. We just tried to fact check it. But it seems like there's something here that where we got in a, we got in a mix up with a, with a brown bear on a fog knack about a year ago. And I guess some guy just got mauled up pretty good. We've been hearing all kinds of rumors from one dude. One of these rumors, I don't know if it's true or not, is that he was uh, sporting a stone glacier backpack and that his backpack got mauled. What do you think about that, Seth? You believe it? Because well, we tried to fact check it, didn't yeah, we? Not, well, yeah. We tried. What, you, what do you feel safe adding here? He was a hiker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know what that means. We don't know, we don't know if he's a, a, a scouting it? type hiker or an REI type what hiker. What if he was hiking around hunting? What if he was hiking around hunting? Yeah, that's what I'd say. I, I don't know. Either way, we love him the same. Yeah. Ron Bame wrote in. Uh, all worked up about. You remember the other day we were talking about dogs and like, and I was talking about the cake theory. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that got a lot of people. I've noticed today a lot of letters came in about the cake theory. Um, they're saying that that was a bad analogy. One guy did. He was talking about when he smells shrimp scampi, that he smells all that. 
he said, I smell the butter and the shrimp, but it's just easier to say scampi. <laughs> so I'm like, whatever. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that gives this guy a hall pass. You got something to add? Well, yeah, because, yeah, sure, shrimp scampi, if you can smell butter and shrimp, well, good on you. You don't have a broken nose. Ron Bain rolls. We're talking about what does, like, what does a dog... But this isn't why Ron wrote in, though. Ron was right in conversation about the what hunting dog, like what dogs smell, like how is it different than what we smell. Um, we got to think about like different uh, climactic, mm. not climax, climactic, uh, climatic. What Cli- am I trying to say? Climactic. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Climate. The event. That, that different situations can influence a dog. And so Ron, who you might know from the Hunting Dog podcast, which is all about all things hunting dogs, um, he's been judging pointing dogs for the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association for 20 years. And he's hung out with a guy who's spent 20 years running dogs from Michigan to Montana to Arizona. And here's what these guys think. He says that, for for tracking ability on a dog, he says humili- humidity, humidity levels, humidity levels are a major factor. He thinks when you get below ten percent humidity, it becomes tough for a dog to detect game. And you get much higher than sixty percent, and it starts to have a negative effect. He says that wind speed is also a crippler. Anything over, say, 15 miles per hour, and the scent just gets too diluted and spread out too thin too quickly. He says you get winds in the 20 to 30 range, it becomes very hard for dogs to sort it out. He's talking about primarily bird dogs. It becomes very hard for them to sort it out. Hmm. He says barometric pressure matters too, but it matters for a weird reason. If a front is coming in, birds just sit tight and they don't feed. So you don't have a lot of bird feet wandering all over the place, leaving odor. So you could you could have this front coming in and think that somehow it's affecting your dog, his ability to smell birds. What's going on is birds just aren't out leading, are, are out leaving scent. Hmm. Most birds walk to their food source. When they're feeding, they're leaving smell. When they're leaving smell, your dog can find it. And he talks about when when he he talks about. When you're judging a dog or buying a dog, there's a scorecard category called use of nose. And he says this should not be confused with quality of nose. A dog has to have a desire to find game. He can't just like to just run around looking for it. You can have, he says, he, he winds up, he says it's a lot like people needing to stay at the task at hand. He says, compare it to hunters that get tired or uncomfortable, say in the rain, and their desire to continue starts to slip a bit. They get distracted thinking about things like hoping the weather gets better instead of pushing through it and blocking out those thoughts. Dogs are very much the same way. The nose that is tied or matched to its level of desire will produce the best results. Some skills can be taught, but desire will always win the day. Just think about that. Ron Bame. Hunting Dog Podcast. Another dude real quick wrote in saying like, uh, we get this a lot too. Saying like, hey, does, does copper ammo work? 
and the thing about it, go ahead, Yanni. I didn't have anything to add. You just piqued my uh, interest. You perked up. Perked up. I was just listening. You perked up. I here, here's the way I would put it. More, I think that copper ammo is having a high rate of adoption because of efficacy. Like so many loaders use it. Giannis? Agree. Like serious shooters switching for no other reason than efficacy. I feel like the efficacy. Accuracy. Accurate. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm rolling that in. Okay. I think for a while what happened with, uh, and fact check me on this, Giannis, because you follow this stuff perhaps tighter than I do. I think for a while when people first started using monolithic or, or copper bullets, it was they were using it because they were very accurate. But they had perf- there was like early on performance issues because there's a lot to get right where the thing has to expand but not break apart. And I think it took some years to get it developed. Yeah, it seemed like there was early critiques of uh, when the bullets didn't hit bone, didn't hit some mass that they would, the term was used, uh, pencil through animals. Like yeah. taking an arrow with a field tip and just pushing it through the lungs and not getting the upset and the damage that you're looking for out of a bullet. And... and I don't know if that was coincidence or if they did make better technology. I know that Federal, with their new, you know, trophy copper line, I know that they have made like a deeper cavity up front that's supposed to help, you know, initiate that expansion and make that those pedals come out more, you know, so you can get the uh, get the damage. Yeah, people try different tricks, like even like cutting them to try to get them to pedal and, and break into four pieces. But I'm telling you, man, I, I have. We've been shooting a bunch of the federal trophy copper, and it comes out looking like a. It comes out looking like if you had a magazine picture of like the perfectly expanded bullet. Mm-hmm. Like opens right up, turns into a nice slug. I mean, they advertise up to ninety nine percent weight retention, so like good penetration and it doesn't bust all up. And they put like a tip, there's like a like a cavity in there, but then it's got a polymer tip on it that helps it expand. And the other problem with it would be that, like, here's the thing to think about when, when you talk about this stuff, is when people talk about a long-range bullet, you might hear it and think like, oh, that means it's like accurate out to long range. It's probably true. It probably has like a, like a good, like a high ballistic, or what's that word? Ballistic coefficient. That's right. But the other thing when you talk about a long-range bullet would be that, it will still mushroom. It will still expand at a low velocity. So if it's coming out of your, if it's coming out of your muzzle at let's say 300 feet per second, if it were to hit something at that speed, if it's a poorly constructed bullet and it hits something at that speed, it might erupt into a bunch of pieces. But then it slows down and it loses half of its velocity and hits something, and it doesn't have. There's not enough. There's not enough force there to cause it to expand. So if you see a long-range bullet, what that'll mean is it can still expand. One of the things it means is it can still expand at low velocities. And I think that these are all things that have taken a while to get sorted out, which I feel like now they've just gotten it sorted out. Where you have like 
solid copper stuff that has a polymer tip and a boat tail design and has you know a good downrange velocity like it's still cooking and still opens up right i just don't think you can really right now i don't think there's really any from an efficacy standpoint i just really don't see there's any argument to, that, that there's any argument against it no, did this guy have a specific question about he's it? He's just saying he's always hearing about it, but he hears different things about whether it works or not. Mm. This dude just wrote in today. I, I've yet to have a bad uh, experience with him. I had a bad experience with a different kind a long time ago, and it was still in its infancy. This is like seven years ago. Not in its infancy, but it was. I was using like an unproven manufacturers offerings and had a penciling incident at a long range mm. 400 plus yards good mark canyon yeah uh tell me about sitting in the tree uh tell me what happens in your mind when you're sitting when you're doing 12 hour sits we're just we're just finishing up a whitetail deer hunt a whitetail deer bow hunt peak rut and Mark's been sitting all damn day. Yeah, for the last three days at least. All day. 12-hour days. It's a long haul. I mean, we, me and Lauren were talking when we got out of the tree every day. You wouldn't think after just sitting for 12 hours that you'd be physically exhausted. But when you get out of there, I mean, you are worn down. Well, you're in a saddle. Today I was in the saddle. The two days before that I was in the stand. He was in the saddle every day. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you're looking a lot. You're searching a lot. But then there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of periods of time where there's nothing going on. And the biggest thing for me on all day sits is it is, it's of course partly physical, but I think the mental side is the bigger part of it. Being able to stay mentally engaged as much as you possibly can over the course of that whole day. And knowing knowing that even though things have been dead for two hours, that at any time it could all change. So I, I've had my fair share of mistakes over the years where I lost focus in the middle of an all-day sit and it cost me. I told you guys a story last year about Holyfield. Right? Mm -hmm. That was 11 o'clock in the afternoon and I lost focus and then there he is at 20 yards. Um, you were sending text messages. I was reading a book on my phone. Reading the book on your phone? Yeah, you're sitting for 12 hours. Everyone, you need a little something to kind of buy the time. And so I would like look at my, I'd look at the phone for 20 seconds, scan all around me. Look at the phone for 20 seconds, scan all around yeah, me. Yeah, I got you. You reading haikus? What were you reading? I was reading, uh, <laughs> it's a book called The Name of the Wind. I was, I, for a second, I thought, I've never heard of a book called Haikus, dear. <laughs> oh, Haikus? That, I'd read that book, That dude. would be a good book. This book about high country coos, dear. I need to read that soon. <laughs> is that, is that Duncan Gilchrist offering? <laughs> no, Duncan's book, Duncan Gilchrist's best book, his best book has an unfortunate title of Hunt High. And I think a lot of people read that. <laughs> and a lot of people read that and they're, they get to thinking one thing. But he's talking about hunting the high country. Yep. <laughs> Not hunting high. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting so. all day, man. I think nothing of going out. Like, if we're, you know, regular spot and stock hunting, anything. I walk, you know, I leave knowing I'm, there's no way I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. Why would I come back? Yep. Because I'll just take a big old nap out where I am. Yep. I'll eat my lunch where I am. There you go. But sitting in the damn tree. 
it wears on you. The same scene for 12 hours, the same trail, the same trees, the same creek. It's all there. You don't get to do anything. It definitely gets worse the tighter the space and the shorter, like, yeah, you've got a view. If you have, if you have, yeah, where you can glass every five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of toughening it out. I having snacks, having water. And then, yes, I I think that it is better to be in the tree and be slightly distracted on occasion by your phone or a book or something like that than not being in the tree at all. Yeah, give me the main argument. Like, people can picture what it is, but tell me why you sit all damn day. So the reason why you sit all day during the rut is because bucks specifically get up, some number of them, on a relatively consistent basis and are cruising for does from, let's say, 10 or 11 till 1 or 2 in the afternoon, especially older deer. Now, you're not going to see the same number of deer as you might in the typical... Um, early morning or late evening hours, right? Deer are crepuscular, so they are most active at first light and last light. So that no matter what, you're going to see the most activity then. But there's a disproportionate amount of activity, especially for mature bucks, middle of the day during the rut. So people, you better tuck into crepuscular there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So crepuscular just it describes an animal that's most active at that dawn or dusk time period. So deer. Many, many mammals, right, are most active the first hour or two, last hour or two. But for the small time period, these bucks know where does will be in the middle of the day, right? They're bedded down. So they have a great opportunity at that time period to go from doe bedding area to doe bedding area to doe bedding area to find females that are ready to breed. So if you're willing to tough it out, it's a great time to get those bucks on their feet. And we saw it. You think he's going around to bedding areas just to sniff all the does out and see who's... who's? That's exactly what they're doing. I want to say who's ripe. Yes. That's not the right word. Hot. Hot hot dough. Ripe doesn't sound quite... <laughs> ripe sounds like something my, my wife would be like, really? Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit too visceral. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like she would say, because there's got to be another word for that. <laughs> ready hot hot dough hot dough yeah 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 and because they're normally happens. like the big bucks. she's coming to her breeding cycle exactly. there you go is that clear that is you guys clear. knew that yes okay. yeah yes uh because they're normally so paranoid yeah this time of year they throw caution to the wind to a degree you know for love i think we can all relate <laughs> I think we definitely witnessed it several times. There was, uh, you know, your closest call came at 1130. Mm -hmm. You called it out before that. You said, this is my favorite hour, 11 o'clock. And here comes the one that was the closest right buck. But there were several other opportunities during that time. Yeah, two out of our last three days of doing the all-day sits, we saw potential shooters in the middle of the day. Um, and, and lots of other bucks, younger bucks. Um, and I've seen at least every year now for a good number of years, I've had at least one mature buck encounter midday. Um, and the thing is, if you talk to guys who take this really seriously, I've got a buddy who always, always hunts all day and he consistently kills mature bucks. And if you look at the number of mature bucks that he's killed, I think he's taken 17 or 18 or 19 of them during the middle of the day. Um, 
you look at the number of hours compared to hours hunted across the board by other guys, right? There's many more hours spent in the tree evening or morning, but there's a significant percentage killed midday by the fewer people that are actually hunting that time period. Yeah. Like no one's there, but they're getting them, but they're getting them. Um, but it's tough. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily fun. <laughs> now, Lauren, when you're up filming Mark Canyon, being in a tree all day, what's your perception of what's going on? Are you like, dude, this job sucks? Or do you feel like you're hunting? I think anytime you're out there, you're kind of feeling like you're hunting. You're part of the hunt. You know, it, it definitely isn't the greatest deal sitting in a tree stand all day, uh, especially a sling or a saddle or you know, it's not comfortable. So, but you're definitely engaged looking for that one buck or any deer, any movement the whole time. So it's kind of just like an assist, you know, that's how I feel about it. Are you periodically filming or do you let hours go by and not film anything? Well, I think that hours went by without filming for sure. Uh, you know, you're stuck in one place. So shot options become pretty limited you get as creative as you can but you know yeah you're like in you retrospect you're always like oh i should have done more i should have done this or that but you know you can only shoot the same angle same depth same focal length so many times so you and two we had a lot of opportunities on on does and fawns and not moving and lots of getting pinned down uh so there's only so much doe footage you're going to shoot. So only so much of the interaction. Oh, I got a close-up of the fawn eating. You know, I think I've got 12 of those. So do I need any more? I'm going to stop filming that. Does and Mark, I'm going to not move. Does you know, Mark ever yell important. at you? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? how does Mark I think at one you? point we were discussing, did he say what that are you doing <laughs> but then we reviewed the footage and he he didn't say that he said what are you doing what was but he doing? i uh what was i doing i think i i'd moved or something no you can't move like that yeah you know me and rich pounder okay me and rich pounder we, we're like an old we're like an old couple yeah i'm like an old abusive husband <laughs> the like he was pretty gentle he didn't really uh yell at me but i get it i think it's definitely uh, gets intense enough where you don't want to screw anything up, especially if you're on a, you know, a pretty high end hunt where, you know, you're the camera guy. If you mess this guy's hunt up, you're going to hear about it, you know, and uh, that's the last thing you want to do is mess up somebody's hunt. So you're definitely part of the hunt. You're a hunter at that point because you're looking for the shot. I feel I felt bad a couple times. I think I apologized to you once. I was like, I'm sorry. I think I get a little bossy up in the tree. I I, I have like hunting Tourette's where like <laughs> I can't help myself. I have to say, don't move. Stop moving. Why are you moving? You can't move like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a couple times. I'm like, oh, don't gosh, move. I sound don't like move. a jerk. He's at your six o'clock. We yeah. had our system down for sure. And, mm-hmm. and that happens real quick. The first day was brutal. The wind was blowing. It was 25 degrees. We were both shivering. You know, at one point, your teeth are chattering. You're like, oh, my God, are we ever going to be done with this? <laughs> uh, but then time goes on and dough pins you down or whatever happens. I think we had, you know, we got lucky because there were a lot of deer and a lot of stuff going on the whole time. So it kind of kept us busy in that mm-hmm. respect. And then after three days, the third day flew by 
12 hours was no big deal. Yeah. What time of the day when you're doing a 12-hour mega sit? God, it is 12 hours, too. It's almost maybe longer than 12 hours. Well, we got in it. Get in the stand around 6.30. 6 oh, 12 hours. Get out just after 6. Uh, at, at what time of the day do you hit where you're like, oh, we made it? Three? Yeah. I mean, there's that point where 10 o'clock rolls around, and you're like, oh, God, it's a double shift. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so it was uh, the first day we did it, I think it was. <laughs> we, we sat in, the, we, mo- we went to this new spot, and there was bucks chasing does all over the place. And it was like a, it was a good morning, and it was probably around 10 o'clock. And I look at Lauren, and I'm like, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which do you want? <laughs> and then he guessed, he's like, is the bad news that we're sitting all day? <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're sitting all day, but the good news is because there's a lot of activity. Yeah, there was tons of deer. We counted uh, yesterday. I think we saw 35. I lost count after 35 deer. Yeah, at least 35 deer yesterday. That keeps you busy, and there was enough to do up there. Mm -hmm. Though it is totally uncomfortable. I mean, your feet go numb, and I don't know. It's not not the greatest deal. This is my first time ever bow hunting for whitetails. Or any kind of deer, um, bow hunting on like a private managed property where deer have a chance to grow old, and to like be there knowing that you could see one of these bucks come by that's four years old keeps you keeps you wanting to sit there because these are things you just read about, and, you know. Than to be like that they actually might show up. Mm-hmm. You think it's going to be easy, but it's not easy. It's still not easy. Still not easy. There's still too many things that could go wrong. But like knowing they're out there is makes it intriguing, man. Knowing they could roll around the corner. How many opportunities did you have, Mark, on two and a half year olds? Oh, I mean, we could have killed a lot of two and a half year olds. A good handful of them. Lots of year and a half olds. Couple three year olds. One three year old, maybe two three year olds. I can't remember. Dude, that's where you're screwed up, man. <laughs> like, talk, like, explain to people what you talk about when you talk about a mature buck. Because you always use the word mature buck. You don't put like a number to it. Yeah. So I, I would typically call four or older mature. Some people will say three or older. In Michigan, a three year old is a if it's everything's relative, right? In Michigan, a three year old in most places is. The most, the most mature buck you might have around. But you don't mean sexually mature because they're sexually, sexually mature at one and a half. Correct. Correct. So what is mature? Yeah, you know. Why not just say big ass bucks? <laughs> in the eye of the beholder, mature. Right. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's all relative. But when you get to four, five, four plus, you are at that top percentile of age in most populations in, in any state, really. Um you know, I think people would look at year and a half old bucks being like your, I don't know, like a 10 year old, like a young child, the way they act, the way they think, the way they operate. You get to a two year old, you've got like a young teenage type deer. You know, you got your 15 year old boy running around being crazy. You get to like a three year old, that's like your college kid. That's the dude out of the bar. Yeah. Night, he's like, they're hitting the bars, but they're, they're, they can be like the big boy in town in some places. Like they, they can walk around with their chest out. They were pretty good and strong, but they still don't quite have it. But when you reach four, that's like your, I think a four year old is like a 31 year old. He's in the peak of everything. 
Um, How old are you, Mark? 31. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. Four, five, six. You're getting to... They've 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 achieved what other whatever body set structurally skeletally mature. That's what I've missed. That's Which, a good point. Yes, they're getting. Man, to that. do they have a weird way they look? Different when they get that old, that old for sure. Everything about them. You see them from hundreds of yards away, and you know what you're looking at. Definitely, the way they carry their head, the neck, the chest. It's all it's it's almost a different animal, and just how deliberate they almost look like in their head. They're going, ah, yeah, yeah. They seem like yeah, grump, grumpy damn, old men. Damn it, is what they seem like walking all day. <laughs> <laughs> how old are you, Steve? Forty-four, man. So I'd say a four-year-old plus, kind of like a forty-four-year-old person. Yeah. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, halfway to eighty-eight, man. Uh-huh. But here's the deal. Let's say he snapped both of his antlers off. You wouldn't shoot him even though he's four and a half. You know, I had an interesting scenario like that two years ago with not to bring up the same deer again every time I ever talked to you, but Holyfield broke off part of his main beam. I like hearing about this deer. Mm-hmm. And I thought him to be four years old that year, and he snapped off half his antler. And I was faced with this question. I was like, well, it's the buck I've been hunting forever. He's well, mature. At that point, he was, I've been two years. He's mature. But he lost half his antler. What would I? A lot of people were asking, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm still going to shoot him." But if he had knocked off both of his antlers, in my thought, it would be. It, if I were to take that deer, I want to take that deer like as I knew him. If that makes sense at all. Oh, so come on, it, it makes sense, but come on. It, part of part of that. How do I describe it? Mental masturbation. <laughs> you kill it. You kill a deer, and you take his, You take the meat. You consume the meat. Yeah. But then you also have some kind of memento to remember that animal by. Hell yeah. See that animal by. So that, that antler, his antlers, the mount. That would be an important part of that hunt for me to be able to look at that, remember that, see that. And it would just feel. It just be a. It just be a bummer to kill him and not be able to see him in all of his glory again. And why sure. I wouldn't want to kill something and then feel like a bummer about it afterwards. Let me put it this let me do this to you. Let's say you found it. Let's say you had him because you found where he snapped him off. I guess in that case, then yeah. Because you could peg you, him back on. You could there. just the taxidermist could could fix it. Oh. Um But yeah, it's an interesting question. Now Holyfield was the uh you think that buck's dead i think so i found a shed in february thinking so i like found his antler so that means he made it into the winter figured he'd be back this year but have gotten zero pictures zero sightings none of the neighbors i talked to have seen him or gotten pictures so where do you think he's where, where, where do you think he's dead from well we found i found his shed early so i found it like the very beginning of february or late january so it was an early drop Lots of times, early antler drop is indicative of health issues, nutrition, something like that. Is that right? I didn't know that. So my theory is that maybe he got shot by someone in gun season. He got injured in some way. So he had an injury, dropped his antler early, and he succumbed to 
die off over the winter, winter yeah. kill or something like that. I was bear hunting one time in May and saw a bull elk still packing his antlers around. Wow. Is that pretty unusual, Giannis? I've seen quite a few. Oh, I've had some of my best elk. I don't do a lot of it, but elk shed picking days um, late in May around my birthday. <laughs> still dropping. Well, just, you know, when you go there and they're all on top of the grass, nothing's growing over them. They're all just brown laying there, you know, like it just recently happened. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, to what degree, if you like to, if you're if you're a guy that wants to kill mature white tail bucks, I mean, one they got to be there. Absolutely, in many places, that's the biggest thing keeping people from killing them is that they're not there. Yeah, they didn't exist when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I grew up ninety miles from here. Yeah, I mean, they really did. I mean, I don't want to put too fine. Really think a, that's I don't want to put too fine of a point on it. Okay, we hunted. Uh, public land north of us a little bit and we hunted some large farms we hunted some large farms very near our house within an eight mile well all the hunting we did unless we went up to baldwin to hunt public land all the hunting we do was an eight eight mile radius less than eight mile radius of our house okay and hunt some large farms two farms that my people my my father knew from church families my father knew from church that let us hunt out there where these were like three and four hundred acre dairy operations where they were running dairy and they were growing corn and raising alfalfa to feed cows. And they had river bottoms, thickets, like the whole picture. Okay. And these two farms were, were virtually up against one another. Over the entirety of over the entirety of my until I moved to Montana. I, and it, my old man's the one who shot it. shot it with his bow. One time of all those years of everyone hunting and the farmer's kids hunting and us hunting and everyone hunting and then surrounding only one time did a buck that I now recognize to have been a three-and-a-half-year-old buck ever come off anywhere. I never laid eyes on one, dead or alive. I do not think, you could re- I do not think they could reach three-and-a-half years of age. Unless they lived in some deep, dark swamp hole that nobody went to ever. The one my dad killed, he killed on the edge of a pine plantation. Small little thing called the pines. What do you think, Mark? You think uh, 20, 30 years ago, Michigan had any big bucks, or are they just not around? I think that Steve's right for the, to, like, to, a, to a degree. There were definitely fewer of them. There were, there were mature bucks around, but they're few and far between. And then number two, I do also think that 20, 30 years ago, people weren't as tuned in to how to kill mature bucks too. Yep. So it's much, people are much more savvy now in the things you need to be doing to see and kill mature bucks. Back then it was kind of head out in the, most people head out in the woods, sit next to a tree trunk or something like that, or get up and sit on a tree branch and shoot something over a carrot pile. Cause you weren't um, running cameras either. Yep, so you didn't, know. you didn't once know. You, if you didn't know if you knew one was out there, then you'd like change everything to go get them. But you didn't know they were out there. Yeah, the one my old man killed, he didn't know it existed until it walked under the tree. Right. Yeah, but I do think culture has changed so much that it allows a lot more deer to to reach that age. So probably the biggest thing is just that the number of mature bucks around is just higher now. I remember being in high school, and one of the 
farms we hunted on and one of the kids tim who's still a big time hunter today and, and does a really good job he's got a small property now but does a very good job with wildlife habitat on this place he was the first guy and i was in high school and i heard tim zerlot had passed on multiple bucks and i remember thinking like something must be wrong with that dude's head <laughs> but he was a revolution he was like a pioneer man he was a revolutionary at the time yeah it's like passing on bucks are you crazy yeah it was unheard of and he had gotten good enough where he could do it we used to think a big buck a big buck was just a year and a half old buck to put more tines on my right. brother danny shot with his bow one time he shot an eight point and got it stuffed it's still hanging in my mom's house it's a year and a half old buck in our head it was a giant i remember he shot it and put a hole right through its heart it took three steps and fell over right on itself and he got it mounted and we you wouldn't believe what we went through to drag that deer out of the hole because the last thing you'd ever do is cut a buck up <laughs> in the woods because yeah. you want to go show everybody yeah and it was like danny killed an eight point danny killed an eight point but there's no perception it was just the same thing it was just the same year and a half old buck we thought that the the points yeah exactly on those points i think that puts it in perspective i think growing up i was taught that like a spike or a forked horn was one year old <laughs> and then if he's a six point he's probably two years yes. old and eight points three yes and a 10 is probably four years old no matter the size you know gosh in our family we didn't even talk about age at all it was just the points it was like oh he's a spike he's a six point never once did anyone say oh it's probably three or five. Oh, it, yeah, it was the same so my just an eight pointer my first buck was an eight pointer and i got it mounted and i thought it was the biggest damn buck ever but it's well under 100 inches Mm-hmm. When I when I shot that thing, I was like in disbelief. I thought it was a giant. Yeah, just because it had eight points. Someone getting an eight pointer got everyone's attention, but now you look at him, you're like, yeah, it's just a, like a he's just a year and a half old. Yeah. So point being, I don't think they were around, and then culture changed. Yeah. I think that that a couple things that led to it in a handful of places, like information about what it required to grow big bucks, and I think kind of a changing. People, this is like some old man shit here, but but a, a lot's changed around the way people handle permissions and stuff on their properties. And I think that at the like when I was coming into the world, it, it, there were a lot of properties around us, farms and stuff around us, where the farmer wasn't even exactly clear on who was hunting there. People just hunt. You know, if someone gave you permission years ago, you just kept going on it until they told you not to go anymore. Right. And so I think that there was more. I think that later when people started to recognize the value of deer more, they started to kind of like wanting to know who was out there. And it just, it wasn't like such a free for all. You know, I had, I would have hunting permission on farms where every person that asked had hunting permission. Right. No rhyme or reason to it. I just, like, that kind of stuff has just come to an end. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like, you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care, and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or... You open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, 
and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. It's tough to come by. I was sitting next to the 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 other night. I was sitting at dinner with you. You have met or heard of Shane Mahoney. Everyone here mm-hmm. to some yes. extent. Yep. So he's kind of a 
preeminent expert on the North American model of wildlife conservation. He's kind of a, like a conservationist philosopher type figure. Is that how you'd describe him, Yanni? Yeah, I like that. He was talking about just the way it's become hard for new hunters, the way it's become hard for young hunters is those days are kind of done when you could just wander around hunting on, on people's land, on neighbor's land and, you know, the farms where everyone, you just kind of go where you take your 22 and ride out on your bike and go. And he said, there's all these programs now that are like meant to sort of like recreate that because you're not going to recreate it. And in, in, uh, if there's an upside to this, the upside to this is I think there's a lot more big bucks running around now as people like exercise more control over their stuff. And I don't know what good big bucks really are besides they look cool. They represent something. They represent uh, an ecosystem. Well, at least a, a species, a population that is in balance in a natural state. If you looked at the deer herd in Michigan in 1970 or something like that, or 1980s, whenever you guys were hunting around or whenever this was. Um, 80s. Okay. Yanni's going to look like. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a very askew deer herd. Heavy, heavy on the does. Very light on any type of mature bucks. Just tons and tons of year and a half old bucks. That's not a natural herd of deer as as it would be in you know several hundred years ago when it wasn't as impacted by yeah. what we're doing but now you are finding some places where you have a, a more natural herd which is which is beneficial not just for hunters that like to see big bucks but having a relatively balanced age structure that's good for the whole herd in that, what way is that good for the herd so for example if you have more mature bucks and you have a balanced kind of structure of the different ages and things and the balance with the does, you're going to have a more tight rut. If you have a tight rut, if you have a well-timed rut that happens consistently in a small window, you're going to have a better fawn drop. You're going to have a tight fawn drop, a well-placed fawn drop that is conducive for the females and the fawns to be most healthy growing up the next year. So if you get, um, let me describe the opposite scenario. If you have a scenario where you've got lots and lots of does, not many mature bucks, just a bunch of year and a half old bucks, you're going to get does coming in to heat and bread at all different times of the year in the fall. So we're going to say a very spread out trickle rut. Does and getting bred in mid-October all the way to mid-December scattered all around. So you've got fawns dropping in March. you got fawns dropping in, maybe not March. you got them dropping in late April, mid-May, early June. You want to have a tight drop. If you have fawns dropping all at the same time, less coyote predation. If you have them dropping at the right time that's not too early, that they're freezing and not having nutrition available, but not so late that they're getting a late start on being able to... They go into winter small. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things along those lines. That Can I lay are, a couple things in here real quick? Yeah, I'm, I'm rambling. No, you're not rambling at all. But I remember... Uh, in those in that era, it was common to hear that you had buck to doe ratios of twenty or thirty does to every buck. And I remember when I learned that they're born basically one to one ratio. It was kind of shocking mm -hmm. to, to see that that level of of harvest on the bucks. But there's a thing that like, and I've talked about this before. I don't know if I talked about it here, but when we had like largely kind of eliminated deer or really knocked deer back bad 
you know, even coming up into the into the 1930s, 1940s, just weren't that many deer around. Um, people became very like, like it was. It became culturally taboo to shoot does. I remember, like in this era we're talking about, when I was a kid, there were a lot of old timers that that would like disparage someone who shot a doe. And because you wanted to get a deer, you just shot the box and you shot every damn buck. Anyone ever laid eyes on got shot. And you'd wind up with these situations where you had, like I said, 20 to 30 does for every buck. And the bucks were all, most bucks were not living in to see their second December. Even relatively recently, that was still the case in a lot of states. So, for example, in Michigan, and I'm going to get the numbers not quite right, um, but some number of years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, give or take, the percentage of the buck harvest in Michigan, if I remember right, someone's going to email you and say I'm wrong, but it's somewhere in this ballpark. Yeah, they will. Something like 70% of all the bucks, maybe more, of all the bucks killed in Michigan were year and a half olds. Now it has dropped down to, so it's significantly improved, but it's still one of the highest in the country. Something like 55% or 50-some percent now, I think, is the number of the bucks killed in Michigan annually are a year and a half old. Um, and that's still like the top five in, in the country. But now across the entire country, several years ago for the first time, an age class different than year and a half olds is a higher percentage of the buck harvest than year and a half old. So now, yep, no shit, now, really? Yeah, so now bucks over three comprise over 30% of the harvest if you look at across the country. No way. Mm-hmm. And this has changed over the last 15 to 20 years. It's, it's been dropping down. So why don't, why don't guys that are big into whitetail management, why don't they let, I, I know the answer to this, but I'm just posing it. Why don't, if you want balanced age structure, why don't they let the, once they hit four, why don't they become hands off? Why be like, oh, we want to make older bucks, we want to make older bucks, but then systematically kill off every buck that gets to be that same threshold age? Why is there not a, a movement to, or, or like a management strategy, be like, to get, to be like post trophy? And say like, oh yeah, man, if he hits four and a half, what one in a hundred bucks or whatever it is will be four and a half. So as big as they're going to get, then we let those go because we're going to create five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. But instead they get that big and people just get so lusty for them. They want them dead. So it makes it hard to argue that you're really trying to have these like age classes in place. It seems like you're just walking. What you're really trying to do is have big bucks because you want to shoot big bucks. And, and you're trying to like act like there's some biology or, or, or ecology or conservation at work when it's like, oh, how convenient. I think, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue the fact that anyone who is managing deer also wants to hunt deer. They want to take some deer. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so there's going to, each person's going to set a different goal that is going to hopefully achieve something beneficial for the herd, but also they've got to, have a goal as far as what they want to try to hunt and, and harvest. And if you start saying that, you know, I want to wait for six or seven or eight 
or nine-year-old bucks, you're simply never going to shoot any bucks then because it's really, really hard to get bucks over four, let alone over five, um, even on big managed properties. It's just not an easy thing to do because even if you have a large property, these deer still go all over the place. Um, so it's no guaranteed thing that if you pass on a four-year-old, he's going to make to five. Um, whether you're on a 100-acre property or a 1,000-acre property, that's not a guarantee. So that just kind of winds up being about as old. Like there's, there's so fewer five-year-olds and four-year-olds even. Yeah. I, I don't know of anyone, even the folks that, that take management to the highest level, have great big properties um, that can control a lot of acreage. I don't know anyone that really looks at targeting anything over five. Five is kind of like that. If it's over five, it is fully mature. It has it's kind of reached the pinnacle as far as body size, antler size, it's 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 um, expressed whatever genetic potential there it is. What he's going to be is what he's going to be, and that's a fully mature deer that's going to do everything that a mature deer is going to do. And if you can get him older than that, great, but that's hard to ask for. Um, so five-year-olds are what most people kind of set as that top end. During this week, tell me about the, or I can start, the encounters you had with, with um the closest encounters you had with mature bucks and what, what went wrong? Yeah. Well, I had one, I had one encounter with mature buck for sure. Mature buck. Do you want to tell my story? Or do you want to start with yours? Uh, you go ahead. No, I'll do it. Whatever you, you decide, Mark, you should go first. Okay. <sighs> it had, it, it, it began and ended so fast. Like they do. So I'm, I'm perched up in a really shitty tree. Pounder, I don't think I'm going to talk about the one that you screwed up <laughs> because I don't think he was four and a half. I think he was like three and a half or something like that. What do you think he was, Mark? So I, I, that's not the deer I saw. The deer I saw was the, the one that you screwed up. The big one? The other one. That's a mature buck. I didn't see the big, big one, but I'm talking about the other one. No. But one, did you screw that up? No. I screwed up. Well, I in that I'm a person that has an odor to him. Oh, not yeah. an unusual odor. In fact, my wife comments how I'm not a smell. Uh, in fact, not a smelly person. <laughs> but uh, okay, uh, can we talk about the one you screwed up? Sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story that has to be told. So, this is the, wait, first of all, I'd like to preface the story by saying that this has never in the history of meat eater ever happened to me before. <laughs> as far as you're, I know. You're embarrassed about it, but you don't need oh, to Oh, terrible. So Lauren was talking about the pressure of like being a camera dude on a hunt. Like that, to me, that interaction that happened is worse than any, like anything either one of the hunters could have done. Do you want me to not tell it? No. Oh, you got to tell it now. <laughs> okay. If killing, uh, killing a mature buck, Mark, how, what percentage harder does it become when you have a camera person? It is harder. I think it's it's half as likely. Something significant, sure. It's twice as hard. I, a little less than twice. Less than twice as hard. Yeah. But still, there's just a lot. There's already a lot that can go wrong, and you just make and it's it's not quantifiable because there's twice as much odor. Twice, yeah. There's twice as much movement. There's twice, twice as, as many sound. weird. There's twice as many weird blobs up in the tree. There's twice as much sound, and I and and I found that that. Um, the best camera guys, I don't know why this is, but the best camera guys don't have, this is, this is not a fair statement. 
we have some phenomenal camera guys who don't have a strong hunting background, which is a plus, but they tend to not know how to read a critter. Yeah. They don't know how to read a critter and they don't know when, is this fair? Pounder? It's, no, it's totally fair. I think I've, I've been learning how to read a critter a lot better. Taking it its temperature. I can take a critter's temperature now. I feel maybe not to the extent of a pro, but I, I'm close, I think. Like, a lot better than I started. When is it appropriate to move? Yes. Taking his temperature. Yep. A deer standing there uh, who's kind of like waving his nose through the air and kind of almost wanting to like stomp his front hoof. <laughs> Don't move then. That's, move. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you're taking his yeah. temperature and you're like, this is not an appropriate time for movement because this deer is like, I don't like something. Uh, I don't know what I don't like, but I don't like it. <laughs> A deer that's got his nose up the arse of another deer. Time to move, man. Yeah, just get, slowly, get it over Still with. slowly. Yeah. So you get it. Yeah. Get, that's good, Chris. A turkey who's got his fan up and his fan is between its head and you. You can do it. That's time to move. <laughs> yep. Um, so we're sitting there and, and, and we're in a weird setup where we're actually in different things. I'm in a tree stand up in a shitty tree and Chris is in like a little outhouse. What do you call those? That's yeah, like a box blind. Box. Chris is up in a little miniature plastic bad box blind. It was... Uh, and less than desirable filming location. But it wasn't that wasn't the problem. No. The problem was about 10 a.m. I get a text from Chris who I'm looking at. <laughs> Chris can hear me. So so we were I were because we're filming. So I have a mic and I can whisper to Chris. I can be like six o'clock deer, whatever, but he can't communicate to me. Um we have one thing where there's a stick that he can hang out of his blind, and that <laughs> conveys a certain message to me. What, what did that convey? That conveys, because this is a problem we have, I got that conveys, I see a deer that you don't see. <laughs> and I'll tell you that this stick does not come into play very often. <laughs> but it did one time. But one time the stick came into play. <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> you get a lot of heat, man. I got a lot of heat, yeah. It's all right. So Your mom loves you, though. It's 10 a.m., <laughs> Yeah, we met Pounder's mom and and, uh, and, and Miss Pounder, Excellent. Mrs. Pounder, and she was telling us what a great cook uh, Pounder is. <laughs> so, and she made a bunch of cookies. So around ten, I get a text. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. And you needed to go down because you had left your camera battery at the base of the blind. So I had my backpack, but then I had like a little go bag that I had made and I was stoked on it because I was going to have it all like folded in and silent. And if I needed to like quickly change a battery, I would just reach into this bag, no zippers, no Velcro, nothing, grab the battery. Still a noisy ass bag. Yeah. Well, until it's, until it's in its right zone, then it's, then it's, it's, it's not the greatest bag, (laughs) but I was stoked on the idea, but then I stupidly forgot to put the battery in that bag and left it in my bag at the bottom of this ladder. And you didn't have a pee bottle. And I didn't have a pee bottle. And you can't really snake her up out over the window ledge. A little too high. And you could have snaked her out the door. Or, but you had to get a battery anyway. So he yeah. says, is it okay if I climb down? It's 10 a.m. Is it okay if I climb down and get me a battery and take a leap? I see the door open. I see him come down. I see him turn away from me, presumably, yeah, 
You snaked her out. Yeah. And I looked past <laughs> you and down the hill. And I'm not kidding you, man. We've been sitting there Dude. all morning. And he hits the ground, starts taking a whiz. And in the direction he's whizzing, I just like, here's a buck. Mm-hmm. And he's coming. And he's close. He's coming. It was like, you ever have a dream where like, you like when you wake up from the dream you're and you realize that it was a dream you're like so relieved that it wasn't real life yes that's what it was except it was real life oh <laughs> that yeah. was like the worst case scenario and i'm saying to you like i do i'm like chris chris then i realize he can't hear Mm-mm. he had to unhook so I, you eventually turn around and i give you a frantic like down on the ground and I see him get out his phone. Like he's going to film with his phone and aim it. It's <laughs> my only instinct. Man. And it's a nice buck. It's a nice, like I'm like very interested in shooting this buck. And this buck comes up and I think he's going to come right up the edge you're on. And wind be perfect. And I'm like, he's going to pass him by 10 feet away. But it's like, he probably not gonna, he's probably not going to see because you're hunkered down in tall grass. But then he cuts and comes in and picks up your smell. And here's the difference between like an older buck and a not older buck. When he hits that smell, it's, he turns, like, like uh, you watch deer hit smell all the time. And a lot of deer hit smell, they, they hit human odor, and they get this like, oh my gosh. And they wave their nose in the air, and they're like, they're going to run, maybe not. They stomp their foot. They, they, they take three bounds and stop again and, whew, and blow and whatever they do. They, they, and then they drift off raising all kind of fanfare and tail in the air and whew, 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 all pissed off and letting everybody know. And, you know, but it took them t- like a, a full minute to like come to the conclusion this is what they want to do. This buck hits that, like that wall of scent. And he, he, he doesn't like, he, his attitude doesn't change, really. But he just stops, turns around, and, I, and lowers his profile. <laughs> like, he seems to like slink into the earth more and just go back the same direction. Mm. Very often it's that, you described the, that wall of scent. I feel like it's they hit a wall. They literally, you can physically see it as if they smash their head into it and then bam it's all different after that and he's like not he doesn't desire to draw any attention to himself yeah no pause it's like that's how they get that's how they live Mm -hmm. like that's the difference between a buck that dies and a buck that lives it's like you bump a big mule deer buck you know like mule deer are famous for like well you bump a mule deer buck and they run, and they're going to vanish. They're going to get where he's not going to be able to. He's going to vanish over the edge, but he stops and looks back. Like the big ones, when you bust a group of them, he doesn't go the way the does go. He goes a different way, and he never stops. He doesn't stop and do the, what was that? And this buck, man, it was kind of magical to watch him. Just be like, not killing me today. Sons of bitches, <laughs> and just slunk out. Now the the other one. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna ask. This wasn't the short tined one, or was the short tined one? He had a, he had one of his sides. One of his sides had noticeably shorter tines than the other side. Okay. Now, the one that was my not the one that was not. I don't want to say it was my fault, but the one that was not Chris's fault. Yes. 
all day we're watching deer that are like following a certain line of traffic. They're, they're, they're coming into our zone and they're like coming along the same edge and some break, some go straight and some break left and come up past us, eat some dried leaves that are laying on top of the snow. They like that little spot. Mm-hmm. You just watch deer. They're like doing this all day long. And there's one spot I can't see really clearly. And it's kind of like a ridge line that comes up to where we are. And late in the morning, like you're saying, late in the morning, here comes one. And I look, and he, he's like already, it's, too, it's happening too fast already. Coming against the flow of traffic, walking the ridge, just has that dead-on, like, paranoid look to him. But traveling, like, with a sense of purpose. And it's a 10. It's a nice 10. And he comes up. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, he's going to pass 10 yards away. He's going to pass 10 yards away. I get my bow. He's behind some brush. I am not even don't even have a chance to start pulling back. And hits the wall of scent. And not even, I mean, he's so close to me. Yeah. And, and I'd been there for hours. And the wind's like, not the kind of wind that flushes everything away, but just the kind of wind that's like very steady in a direction. And you've pulled up, I don't know how much stink, at 10 yards away. And he hits it and just gone, vanished. Was that one of the bigger whitetail bucks you've seen while bow hunting at least? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Probably pretty nice one. Super nice one. It was the kind of buck. And I was glad, I was kind of like reviewing it in my mind. I was kind of glad I didn't have time to dwell on how nice he was. But I find that I could do everything better when I have time. Yeah. If I have time. Um, you see something, you get excited. When you have time, the excitement goes down, and you start remembering the important things. This would have been one of those great shots to screw up because um, it would have happened too fast. Do you think, is there anything, like if you, I always try to do this at least, any kind of mature buck encounter that doesn't end the way I want it to, try to self-analyze a little bit. When you look back on that, is there anything you would have done differently? Is there any other... Yeah, I would be, after all this time we've been spending in trees and and just having things like that happen and then not work out, I think that um, it's hard to do it, but the the, the balance of shooting lanes and cover. Yeah. Because here you have, here here I'm in a tree where 25% of the stuff around me, there's no possible way to take a shot. You're also not that high in that tree either. That's a pretty low stand. It's a horrible tree. Yeah. That, from that angle, you got plenty of cover. Yeah. You can't, it's impossible to shoot. 25% of the, like, 25% of your zone, you cannot shoot. Mm-hmm. Now, though, it, if we assume that we're stuck with that stand where it is, if the back had been trimmed out, you know how much worse we would have been, like, hung out to dry then? That's the thing. No, if because would. if you could, like, I actually was sitting there tonight thinking about, um, I was actually sitting there tonight thinking about this problem and the cover issue. And I think if I hunted a if I hunted a, a spot where I was really like putting in multiple years of hunting there, I would I would probably like my contribution to whitetail hunting would be that I would become very detail focused around selecting spots not just for their location, not just to take advantage of pinch points and travel routes, but I would put a lot of energy into places that had good cover and 
And so that if I looked around me, if I like spun in a 360 degree circle, I'd be going like cover, shooting lane, cover, shooting lane, cover, shooting lane. Even if I had to have someone come out, if I had to like take my woman out and, and give her a pole do. saw, give her a pole saw with a 30 foot handle. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I don't think you're bringing up anything new here. I think that you're explaining what most people go out there and try to achieve. Not when you're doing, not when you're running around making snap decisions about stuff. Yeah, I think you do. I, we used to when I when I was younger, my old man put a ton of focus on it. Not cover, but shooting lanes. If you have the the preset stands that you're putting up before season and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But not like when you're doing the run and gun. Hanging hunts. Exactly. Stuff. And Mark. I think I think the issue here, right, both your situation and my situation, we ran to the same problem. Um, but I think what I think what we have here is we've got a property that we are trying to get stands up this summer and a lot of stands up across a bunch of places, and there simply wasn't time to get every single one perfect, right, guy? And nobody hunted it. Yeah. You guys were the first ones to right. um so I think what we have this year now, we're getting this first run through of like all the stands we've we've hung, all the spots we've got trimmed out. I think now this next spring and summer, we're gonna know, okay, this one we gotta fix A, B, and C. This one we gotta trim out this, this, and this. And and we'll have time to go back to a lot of these other stands that we just barely had time to get up this year. Now it's now we can try to get things a little bit more fine tuned. You know, I have a back a background as an arborist. Is that right? So this is a especially sensitive subject for I, me. I can I can feel that <laughs> you stewed on it. Mm-hmm. I've stewed on it as well because it it hurt me too. But that's hunting. Okay, talk about getting screwed by big bucks. Getting screwed by big bucks. Yeah, the well, anatomy of getting screwed by a big buck. Well, this that same day that you had your big giant buck come by and be stuck behind brush, I get this text message from you saying I had a giant at ten yards, couldn't get a shot because of brush. I told you I could have jumped on him. Yeah. Yep. I should have jumped on him. <laughs> Why wasn't that your, uh, your your change that you would have made? Um, so that morning, like I said, me and Lauren had, um, we'd been seeing a handful, not even a handful, a good number of bucks running through chasing does around. A lot of activity. So I gave him the good news, bad news speech, told him we're going to sit all day. And um, as you alluded to, around 11 o'clock, I turned to him and I said, hey, Lauren, this is the, the beginning of what I think is the best stretch the day oftentimes for like that one solo mature buck to come through just notorious 11 to one big bucks big old mature bucks are going to come cruising through checking these doe bedding areas and the spot we were in was a really cool little bench on a ridge and there's great bedding behind us great bedding sort of in front of us a little ways and then around the corner of this ridge it just seemed like a spot that a mature buck would cruise midday so we even set a bet we're like okay i'm betting like let's put money i'm like i have one dollar bill in my wallet I bet you that we will see a mature, but a deer. I think we just said a deer. I bet like eleven thirty-five, we'd see the first deer between eleven and one. You walk around with a one-dollar bill in your wallet. <laughs> That's what he told me. Yes, in this situation, I happened to have a one-dollar bill. Was it? Okay. Um, I lost. You did lose, and then Twice. later we double or nothing did. I won again. <laughs> um, but it, it actually, I, I wasn't quite right because we saw the doe at eleven thirty. The buck we saw one hour later. So 12.30 rolls around. We'd seen a few does coming through midday. 12.30, I am looking off to my right, kind of doing my scan, and I notice a dark shape moving along the side of this ridge. 
and there's snow over everything. It snowed overnight. So you could see these bodies are lost. Right away, I pulled my binoculars, get eyes on him. And at first, I saw it was a buck. And I'm like, Lauren, buck coming at you know, whatever, six o'clock or whatever it was. And um, he gets turned around. And I'm like, usually the first thing I say is if it's a buck or doe. And then right away, there's usually a quick snap judgment, like little buck or shooter or something like that, just so he knows. Like, if shooter or not. Yeah. And at first, I was like, buck, big buck. And then I'm pausing and I'm looking at him again and, and I'm trying to look at his body and try to like see what's coming my way. And for the first time this trip, I was like, I think that's a shooter. Um, I just remember noticing obviously bigger body. And then when you looked up at his antlers, I saw heaviness. There was a heaviness to it. And I remember looking at the main beam and seeing like something funky going on. Another thing of indicative, you're not going to see like a year and a half old or two and a half year old buck. That's going to be some kind of unique funkiness to the rack. Um, so he's coming down the ridge. And earlier, maybe 10 minutes before, does that sound about right? Maybe five minutes before, we had seen a couple deer running or moving across the opposite ridge. And so I'd grunted a couple times just on the off chance that one was a buck. We occasionally do like a Hail Mary grunt. So I grunted. Now this buck comes in. We didn't know if he was coming in just because he was cruising or if he was coming into the grunt. But Make your butt grunt noise. Uh, well, I usually use a grunt tube. But yeah, with, but just without do, a grunt just tube. Just do it without it. Brock. It's more like this. Guys, Zuck, you can probably do it. Do your turkey call with no turkey call. Check this out. This is guy with no turkey call in his mouth. Do the purr. Yeah, that's where he makes his magic. <laughs> yeah. The magic is so purr. good. That's good, man. Yeah, it's real good. So there you are. Nicest buck we got on camera, right? Yeah, well, well, you're you're stealing my thunder. Oh. <laughs> so the next thing I know, um, he he is coming up. He he comes over the rise. And at this point, like, full-blown, this is absolutely a buck I'm going to shoot. I grab my bow. I turn into position. He's working his way across. And at this point in an encounter with a mature buck, I'm usually holding my bow and then I'm going to grab my release and have it clipped on and ready to go. So I go to clip on my release and I don't have a release on my hand. Because you were changing your clothes? Because just a minute, like 10, 20, 30 minutes, something before that, I had added another layer, put a vest on. So I took everything off, put the vest on and I'd take off my release. Well, I put my release in my pocket and forgot to put my release on. Part so, of the downfall of a 12-hour sit. Yeah, exactly. You kind of want to put a layer on, take a layer off, whatever. Yeah. So this is the most terrified I've probably ever been in my entire hunting life when I've got this great big mature buck coming in and I don't have a release on. I, and I, I, I said a bad word on camera. <laughs> I'm like, I blanked up. I said that on, as he's walking in. I'm like scrambling, trying to get my release. I found it. And I'm trying to get it in my hand and he's just slowly walking across. Fortunately, the area he's walking across is all limbs. Like there's zero. Could have shot anyways. Zero. Could you draw him back? Uh, no, because he was so far from being from being able to be in a shot lane that I'd be holding back for three minutes. So I remember getting the release on, and my hands started to shake while I was trying to get it on so badly I could not get the strap through the buckle. Like I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my gosh, this buck's. You still get shaky it. from bucks? No. I was shaky from the release, from freaking out about trying to get the release All on. that threw you off. That's what threw me off. Okay. Um, like, I was like, I got to get this thing on, and I couldn't. 
and I'm just imagining he's standing right in the open and I can't shoot him right now. He wasn't, but in my mind, I was thinking, I was like, but finally, I, I remember telling myself, don't think about going fast, just just pull it through. Just, <laughs> <laughs> so I like slowed it down and I got the release on and I looked back up and he's still behind all these tree limbs, slowly working his way. I'm like, okay. He's right there. He's moving in. He's like 30 yards. He's 25 yards. Good question about the release. Do you ever yeah. practice fingers so that just in case your release had fallen <laughs> into the snow? No. You would just have to let him walk. I you couldn't shoot fingers. I don't know how to do it. I don't think I would shoot fingers. Can you shoot a short limb bow with fingers? There's well, no that's, room that's for your fingers. Thi- well, there's a, cer- there's a minimum axle to axle that you have to have so you don't get like a real bad pinch from the bow string. Yeah. My grip just- is so strong. I can just grab the loop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With a pinch between my index finger and thumb and pull back, man. That's very impressive. I, I do train that. Wow. Put it in your teeth. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so, no. No release, no go. No release, no go. But in this case, I was able to get the release on time. It was a huge relief. He's still there. I'm clipped on. I'm like, all right, this is great. But then I'm looking at him, and there's just no shoot. There's no holes. I can get a shot. I can't thread it through anywhere. I'm looking at him, like trying to see, and he's just noomy noom his way along, kind of just sniffing around, walking along, just perfect. Now he's 20 yards broadside. Lawrence filming him great, and he's a beautiful buck. And then I look, okay, no shooting lanes, no shooting lanes. I'm seeing, okay, he's got to walk another 10 yards or so. And then there's see, there's gap. no reason for a buck to be lingering around that long without hitting a shooting lane. But he's moving anyway. Yeah. And I agree, there should have been a shooting lane here. There just, there just wasn't. Um, there were shooting lanes in the other three directions. This was just the one spot that we didn't get yet. And but he's moving, so it wouldn't do you any good. Slowly moving. And unfortunately, he slowly moved in the direction that our wind was blowing, the one direction we didn't want him to go. And there was no openings before he hit that wind. So just like you described, he's walking along and he hits the wall. And as soon as he hits the wall, it's like someone spanked him. Like he just jumped and bounced off it's different than your buck that slank away he hit it and like immediately jumped ran off 10 15 yards stopped really yeah looked back one time and then slunk away and then after that i just melted down because then i realized that was the big brow buck the big brow buck was the the buck that i got in camera in september or august the biggest deer we'd seen in the farm Really, really, really cool deer. He has a, um, he's, he was the obviously most mature buck that we had seen yet. Huge body. Um, like I remember, we we got the picture. I'm like, that's a no brainer. That's an, that's the only real one we got that wasn't no. Mm-hmm. And then he has this really unique, like at least 12 inch brow time, just huge brow time. Um, so really, really, really cool buck. And he was the one I was like, man, if there's any deer I could happen to get a chance at, he was the one I would really like to get a chance at. And there he was at 20 yards, and I couldn't shoot him. And he bounces off, and, and that was it. So I was, you know, you have that, these moments, especially in Michigan, an opportunity to mature buck is so, so, so rare. An opportunity to mature buck like that in Michigan is is infinitely more rare. Um, to have that right there in your hands after hours, so many hours. I mean, this is, you know, I've been going at it for quite a long time here in Michigan for I don't know if that was like the 10th day in a row or something like that that I've been hunting um, in the rut. And um, to have it right there and not have it to come together was a little frustrating. Even like it, it doesn't even need to be a big, huge giants, man. Because I had like a, like I loosed an arrow 
I don't know, it was like a eight point, you know, like a little, like a two and a half year old type eight point buck. But this trip, like a, like a screw up for me. And it's like, all of a sudden just there he is out of nowhere, no sound, nothing. Like there he is and he's going to be gone in no time. And I have a great shooting window and he stop, and, and I go to draw back. So I'm ready when he hits the shooting window. And if I need to, I'm going to say something to stop him. Even though you said that with these bucks, don't do that. We did have a phone call before last night. We talked about it, right? How they jumped the string. Mark was saying they're so, like, they're too high strung and too nervous all the time. And when you stop them with a, with a grunt, they tense up so bad that when they hear the string, they're going to bolt. They're going to jump the string. So you don't like to alert them. If you don't have to. Yeah. Well, I go to draw back and not go to, I draw back so that I'm ready for the lane when it's a nice big shooting lane, but he stops shy of the lane. And as I'm looking, I realize, oh, wow, there's actually like most of his rib cage is actually open. And I become so fixated on the fact that, like, what are the chances and, and can you do this? And, oh, my gosh, you can. And should you? And sure, it's open. And I'm, like, running this in my head. And, and as I'm, like, as my brain is sending the signal to, to hit the release, he steps. But I still, like, hit the release. And, I, and, and like, reviewing in my head, I almost had the desire to, like, reach back and grab my arrow. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean to do that. No. But he stepped and lunged, like stepped, or was already like stepping like he's scared. He saw me pull back and like freaked and lifted up and stepped. And then his step, as, the, as I'm releasing the movement, his step turns into a leap and was gone for the arrow. It's amazing how quick they can drop like Dude, that. Dude, this is one of those old crazy ones. Yeah. This is the teenager. So how did you feel after that? missed opportunity like how do you take that well at first personally? i felt pretty sick because i was afraid i hit it mm, yeah but we have you know one of the luxuries we have we had two luxuries one a camera so you can review and two snow yeah so i waited a while and got down and followed his tracks for a long ways not a drop of blood and then i catch up to him chasing a doe oh really yeah <laughs> and then went back we watched the footage a ton times more and you really it's not there and i couldn't find the arrow because i went into snowy high grass but like i said i track i tracked him for over 100 yards how based off the film how much do you think he dropped if he doesn't drop he goes forward because he was already going forward but you don't think he went down right doesn't, i know exactly what you're talking about but no he doesn't seem to go down hmm. he seems to go forward he was already get he was already getting going and i even like as my arrows leaving i'm like i'm saying like what do you Oh, well, Chris and I reviewed it too. I would say for sure that he did the classic duck the, the duck the string. You felt he quotes. went down more than forward. Yeah, because when they before they can go forward to to make that they action, spring up. they have to load their legs. And the what looks like a duck is when they, they load it. their legs and they're low, they loading they're, up. They're lowering to basically get their legs into a to to a compressed to spring off. so they can then push off. Okay. Rather than you guys sitting here having like knowing glances at each other while we're talking about this, <laughs> he was already stepping forward. No, he was. He was walking. So, uh, yeah, he was walking forward as you released, 
when he heard your string, your bow go off, he did what's called ducking the string, where he crunches his legs underneath him, his body drops, and then he and then he goes forward. Okay, uh, where were we, Mark? Um, we were just talking about how we both had our opportunities slip through our fingers like that, and how that can be frustrating. Super frustrating, man. Yeah. So, yeah, I spun the camera over to Mark after that buck hit the wall and ran off. Oh, yeah. It was a cold day. It's 25 degrees, and he's shaking like a leaf. Yeah. And I asked, I was like, are you cold or what's going on? I'm like, no, man, that buck tore me up. <laughs> it was just. He was shaking in his boots, like full of emotion, obviously. Big, big opportunity slipped through his fingers. Did you, did you cry? Holy no, smokes. I cry, but I was, I was upset and excited and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was, the, that would have, I mean, well, it was the best buck on this property. And if we're talking, I've, I've killed mature bucks in Michigan, but that for sure would have been the biggest buck I'd ever would have gotten a shot at in Michigan. So it was, it's a, that's a really big deer for the state. Yeah. Um, so that was an opportunity that I would have, love to have seen it go a different way so i was just i don't know it's just it's something when it's so close for some reason and it just slips through your fingers it hurts just a little bit more like and i knew and i knew it too in my head i'm thinking that was my opportunity like you're you're yeah there's a chance but especially here in this state you get maybe one opportunity to mature buck even if you hunt really smart on most places at least most places i hunt i don't hunt this is a abnormally good property for me um, but most years you've got that one chance. And if that one chance doesn't go the way that you want it to, you're kind of SOL. So I was like, that was it. And you were so, so close, 20 yards. Uh, two, two observations. One was ridge pounders, but it's interesting. Is that, you know, you're up here and right now because there's so much deer movement, you're having all these like adrenaline moments. Mm-hmm. And Ridge was noticing, and, I, and once he brought this up, I realized it's true. Adrenaline moments uh, make it that you get cold. On the come down? Yeah. You feel your body temperature drop mm-hmm. in the minutes after adrenaline rushes. Yeah. I could see that. Which, if you'd asked me prior, if you without thinking about it, if you'd asked me, I'd be like, I'm guessing that it makes you feel hotter. Now, when my like when it's real cold and you're camping and you got to go take a growler, my brother used to call it taking a heater because <laughs> he'd always mysteriously come away feeling warmer, like just the activity or something. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd be like cold, the relief, and yeah, and he'd go dig a hole and come back and be like, "Dude, I'm warmed up." Like, I don't know why it doesn't make sense, but I got warmed up. But having a buck encounter or just a deer encounter, even just like something exciting happened, five minutes later you realize you got cold. Mm-hmm. I'd be shivering. I'd be fine before a big buck would come in close. And then as soon as he walks away, then I'd start shivering. I'm mm-hmm. like, wait, what? But it's nothing's changed. You feel ch- a chill. Mm-hmm. As the adrenaline goes away, it leaves you feeling a chill. Uh, my other observation is this, and this is harder to articulate. Harder to articulate. Uh, I spent a great many years lusting for and trying to figure out and crack the code on how to get how to just like locate big mule deer you know and it took a long time to start a lot of it was location but also just strategy 
um, like how to figure it out. For, for years, we just walk hunted, walked likely territory, thinking you'd kick them up. Like, this is like how we went about it. Just like you'd kick them up, right? Yeah. And over time, I learned like uh, that not just that you need to sit and observe, like where you sit and observe and when you sit and observe and what you're actually looking for and all that. And then, you know, gradually like finding nicer ones. But the, the, the years of frustration around it made me want to learn it more and more and more. A weird thing, and I think it's because I have a, a, a long background of, of what we thought we were serious deer hunters, but we didn't do the stuff that you do, but we felt like we were serious deer hunters all from the time, you know, for a good decade I did that, between becoming old enough to legally hunt and then moving a, away from the Midwest. Um, like, I, that's what we did and thought we were, you know, into it. Yeah. But, um... I don't know. Like I, I totally respect them, but I just don't. I, like I, I'm not getting where I feel the lust for them. Yeah. No, and I don't know why. Well, I think they're so hard, but I just don't feel the lust. See, I think you just haven't. This is too much of. Uh, you were dropped into a thing. You're just kind of along for the ride here right now. I think the at least for me, what gives me this like insatiable craving to keep learning about these animals and hunt them and try to figure them out is the chess match element of it. The, the, just the constant tinkering and rethinking and, and observing and adjusting and learning more. And, and that's something that in this situation, you know, you showed up to a new property. We're kind of saying, well, try this, try this, try this. I think that if you had, to move back to Michigan for a year or something like that, and you had to dive in and figure all this stuff out, you'd start... I'd get lusty. I think you'd get lusty when you start digging into that, start putting that puzzle together for yourself. That's when things start getting really, really interesting. And this is an interesting scenario here because, um, you know, I'm learning it too, and, and, and you're learning it, and, and Guy, you're learning it to a degree, and this is kind of the first year this property is being hunted in this kind of way. So there's lots of new elements. We're kind of figuring things out as we go. Um, I feel like we learned a lot just this week. Um, a lot. All sorts of stuff I already know I want to do differently next time around. Um, but all those mistakes that in the moment are like a painful mistake or something, that just reinvigorates and re-excites me for well, I want to do this differently and I want to do this differently. I want to try that differently. And I think and I already, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was telling you guys the other night, like I'm sitting in my bed at night for a half hour to an hour looking at maps and thinking about, ah, we should move the camera there. We should move a stand there. We should get it back in there. Because I think that these mature white-tailed deer, um, they don't live in the most rugged, rough country. They don't get the biggest antlers of any ungulate. They don't. Um, they're not going to put as much meat in the freezer as a moose. They're not going to take you to a mountain peak like a mountain goat. But I don't think there is a more savvy, wary, tricky, smart critter out there than a mature whitetail buck. Like they deal with a whole lot of humans, and these deer that make it to that age are just survivors. And to consistently get on them, and to learn them and be in a position to to sometimes get a shot at a deal like that requires a lot of mind power, like thinking. And that just gets me. I see it get you. <laughs> I love it that it gets you. 
and and I, and I'm not like down on it. It's just like it just. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Did you have a good time? Phenomenal time. I feel really bad. A lot of stuff. Why would the world you feel bad? I feel really bad that like you just didn't that you didn't get a shot of oh, one. I mean, cares? you did get a shot of one. Who cares? But I just I don't felt care like about I that at you, all. Felt like I let you down. No, who cares? I had a phenomenal time, a great time, um, and loved every second of it. But I don't like. Uh, yeah, man, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I just like those mule deer and stuff like that. Just, I get that. You know, I get that. I love it. I would do it all the time, but. I, I think for me it's I, I think for me that I've that that a, a thing that like some kind of strength that I have in hunting is just um like and just go and go and go. And sometimes it's a hindrance, but sometimes it's a strength. It's like go and go and go and I like to sit and just watch and watch and watch and, and like be out. And and I and I, I think that I struggle. I, I think that I, I I struggle a little bit with the um, the stationary, the very stationary aspect. Yeah. Because even if you're sitting there glassing for mule deer, glassing for coos deer, whatever you're doing, and you're in one spot, there's there's like this kinetic energy that builds. Yeah. Because you know that all of a sudden there's going to be your chance, and you're going to go. Yep. Even if you wait all day, you might wait all day. But there's still this idea that like go time. Now we're gonna go. Yep. And to be strapped into that tree, watching things, and it would never work to go after them. They're just not gonna put up with that. But watching things and feeling that, and it's going the wrong direction, and you're like, you don't have that that you don't have that um, that autonomy, or you don't have that. There's a lack of control. You can't make it move. The agency. You don't have the agency yeah. to, and it like really, I don't know. I feel like I'd have to get better at it, you know? I'd have to get better at it. I used to not have the ability, like what I was talking about earlier, like trying to learn how to kill mule deer. I didn't have the ability at the time. If you just said, oh, the key to kill mule deer is sitting and observing, I wouldn't have had it in me. Yeah. I developed it. I would have to develop the ability to sit in these damn trees. I think, but I wind up cursing the tree. <laughs> I don't wind up loving the tree. I get that. It's like it's like I feel like I'm chained to it. You know that if you had sat in that same tree that you sat when you had those two encounters described, you would have had another nice big buck in front of you this morning. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. 
or to yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. You know why he was there? Because you weren't there. Because I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the funny thing, like hunting this stuff now. Like you'd be like, oh, a big buck passed by that tree stand. Like, yeah, he, big buck passed that tree stand because you're not in it. Yeah. It's not like Things he would have been. It's not like he would have been there anyway. <laughs> yeah, it can be frustrating. Yeah, I do feel like the interesting thing I, about a Western style hunt is that a lot of the actual hunting is it. The hunt is happening right then. Right, the decisions you're making that are going to impact that hunt are happening right now. It's like, do I go up that ridge or that ridge, or do we make the stock now or do we wait? Many times, the actions that dictate the success or failure of a whitetail hunt are not the actions taken right now as that deer is in front of you. It's the actions you took 
two months ago or four months ago when you made the decision to put a stand here, when you thought through all the things, all the assumptions you have about a deer, you think through all the behaviors that are going to happen on, on November 8th, all that stuff that's leading to what you're seeing on November 8th, the reason that happened is because of decisions made on August yep. 1st and what limbs to cut, what limbs not to cut, which trails coming through here. Why did I want to access the tree stand from this way and exit that way? Um, so, so much of the hunt actually takes place many, many, many weeks beforehand because the hunt really is in setting up the amb- ambush location. We have the decisions we can make now in the moment are, do we hunt? A or B or C or D, which place for the what we have today, and then how you actually conduct yourself in the tree. But a big piece of the hunt you missed out on. Um, so that I, I would imagine that maybe that might um, change your experience a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, a reason I like to hunt turkey so much is because it's so responsive, mm-hmm. physically responsive. Yeah. He does this, you do that. He does this, micro movements, little... It's just like, I like it. Yeah. Speaking of turkeys, we called in a lot of deer this week. They yeah. were very responsive. We called to the in grunts. a bunch of deer tonight. Mm hmm. Oh, you did? Tonight, too. Called in a bunch of does. Huh. They didn't want to leave. Why didn't you shoot a doe? Yeah, I just didn't, man. We had a lot of opportunities to shoot at does. Yeah. A lot of them. I don't know why. It's a good question. I wondered the same thing. <laughs> just because we were kind of like hunting bucks. Yeah. And I'm not hurting for meat. Yeah. I'm sitting pretty good, actually. If I was meat crisis, it would have been a whole different situation. Yeah, we would have solved that problem quick. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for coming out and chasing whitetails. I'll come do it again. I hope it, I hope it goes a little different. I had a great time, man. I don't care if I got one. I honestly don't care. Good. If you could, like, probe into my brain and see if I'm telling the truth or not, I'd be telling the truth. All right. I really don't give a shit. All right, good. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It was fun to listen to you all week, learn learn a lot from you. Well, and thank you to the to Guy and, and Matt for allowing us to, to hunt this location and I sure want you guys to come back. It was a good time. Do that turkey purr again. <coughs> we heard that a whole bunch today, didn't we, Pounder? Oh yeah, we did, dude. We, we had, had turkeys we had turkeys up close and that's the thing i remember that you don't realize how much noise they make yeah they're a lot of all, messing around they're all making noise all the time when you get that close to them they're cool man getting in their winter flocks yeah we're 10 20 feet from them and they didn't just, care about they're us they're all either. making noise we were moving i was like filming them moving and they were like don't care bro we're eating corn i think if you'd have said something to them they had moved yeah <laughs> i was like hey turks well, you guys need to get a turkey tag next year put in for one. Oh man, I mm-hmm. today I was really regretting not having one. Yeah. Lauren, you got any final thoughts, man? Just thanks for having me along. I learned a lot from Mark sitting in tree stands for 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good time. I was definitely a part of the hunt. Yeah. Not just here to take pictures. Not just here chasing dollars. <laughs> He lost dollars, actually. Yeah, I lost, lost <laughs> he $2. He lost $2. Oh, yeah. So you, yeah he that, still that, wants his $2. That cut, that cut into the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Uh, you know, obviously, sitting in a tree that long is not anyone's favorite thing. Maybe it, maybe it's Mark's favorite thing. But, uh, 
I admire I it, I man. Can. I admire it, man, sitting in a tree like that for that long. It's tough. I think it comes with age, too, the ability to – not necessarily the ability, but just the uh, just the downright appreciation of it. It only comes with age of sitting there for a long time and just, I- just smelling the roses. It only comes with with it long, you know. Uh, you, you're never going to meet a 25 year old that's like, oh yeah, I disagree. You do? Yeah, for sure. yeah, I disagree too. Yeah. All right, 18. Whatever the cutoff date is, the cutoff age is. Yeah, there's a, there is an age. I just think if if you're tore up with it enough, you'll sit all day. If you love it enough, you'll do it. So there's like right, but you'll sit all day. But will you enjoy it? Oh, now that is different, probably. That's what I'm saying. I think that even even the 31 year old me sometimes is like, God, why aren't they moving? Why isn't this happening? Like, exactly. And does, I just think for me at, at 40 now, of just in the settling. last few years, sort of been like, you know what? The, I, what else? What the else is actually better? Yeah. Than just sitting here and and and, and waiting for the next woodpecker to come by, or the next chickadee to come by or whatever yeah it is a rare opportunity to just slow down and embrace oh it's non-existent everything yeah it's easy to get caught up in everything else my brother hunts by himself he's a few years older than me so i don't know what the age part he hunts by himself and he he hunts by himself in the mountains bow hunting for elk Mm -hmm. and he said that every day it's part of his day to talk himself out of going home (laughs) Because he hates it. Hates it. Interesting. And has the every day talk himself out of quitting. What is he hating? The grind of it. Yeah. I get that. But he likes getting the elk so much. That in the end, it's worth it. But he says, every day I got to just be like, you can't. Just don't let yourself. You can't go home. Don't, have- give, don't give in. Don't let yourself go home. I have moments like that every day doing these all day sets too. It, it so much of of hunting the rut in particular is like is mental. It's mental toughness. So every year leading to this point, I have like a little self pep talk. It is all about mentally being in it. Are you going to grind it out? Are you going to simply make the decision that no matter what goes wrong, no matter how tired you are every morning, every morning you wake up at four or four thirty, whatever. You're just like, geez, all I want to do is hit the snooze and keep sleeping. But are you going to dedicate yourself to say, no, I'm not going to give in to that. You're going to go out there. You're going to do what you know you need to do. You're going to tough it out. You're going to, you know, it's just every single year when I look at the rut, we kind of call it the whitetail world, it's kind of like the rut marathon because there's like two to three weeks where everyone who really loves this stuff is using all their vacation time or whatever and sitting in the tree all day for two weeks straight or whatever. And that definitely wears on you mentally and physically. And um, and there's something to be said about coming out of that. And you can look back and it is, it's not like climbing a mountain physically. It's not that kind of physical challenge, but it's a mental challenge. And that I was telling Lauren today, like as long as I come out of a hunt like this, knowing that I gave it everything I could, like I didn't leave anything on the field or I left it all on the field. I'm yeah. not, I'm not in any That's way feeling like analogy. a sport, sport ball analogy for you, Steve. Um, you don't cut any corners. If if as long as I can know that in my head, I can drive home tonight or tomorrow morning and feel okay about this hunt. I think that one of the things that gives people discipline in all aspects, this isn't just hunting advice, but one of the things that I'm starting to think gives people discipline is it comes as much from it, it comes as much from self hatred and self loathing as it does any kind of love for something in particular. 
because what you want to, what you oftentimes wind up getting driven by is hatred for the version of yourself that would quit. So it's not that you love the woodpeckers and chickadees so much. And you do, I'm sure everyone does, or you, you know, anyone that gets into this game does, but it winds up being that you are like, I recognize that the smart thing to do would be, be able to sit here all day or stay out overnight right now, or like sit up on this hill and keep glassing or you name it, take one more cast, right? Go over the next hill and do one more shot gobble. You're like, I recognize that that's the way to be successful at this thing that I care about. And I hate myself for wanting to do otherwise, other than what I recognize to be the best thing. And you're motivated by, you're, you're motivated by that as much as you are by, uh, the positive end of things. Yeah. I hear this from a lot of people. I, I have it. I know my brother has it. Yeah. Even like writing a book. You know, like I, I, I hate the guy inside of me that wouldn't finish this. Yeah. To Yanni's point earlier about how this might change with age. Have, have you seen that change with age? Do you feel that way less than you used to? Or is it still just just as much? It's only different now because I recognize it more. Hmm. I used to just be like driven to do some things, but I didn't really think about it very much. Right. You know, like here, here's a here's an example. Uh when I, I was brought up, my mother still lives in the house I was brought up in, and I, my room was on the second floor of a house, and it overlooked the lake. And there was these large oaks, still are large um, oaks in the backyard between my bedroom window and the lake. And I knew on mornings that we were supposed to go bow, wake up and go bow hunting early in the morning. Um, I knew that if it was super rain, rainy and super windy, we probably wouldn't go. And I would wake up. And I would look out and would hope to see tons of rain and the limbs just going nuts because it meant we didn't have to go. And how guilty I would feel for hoping to see that. <laughs> yeah. This, the guilt shit, man. The self-loathing and the guilt is a powerful, powerful force in life for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. And quitting hunting or quitting fishing, that kind of stuff. The other day I took my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, we were out duck hunting, and she's crying. She's laying in her waders on the bank of a pond, crying. And there was a real part of me that, like, that there was a real part of me that wanted to push against that very heavily. And I let her, made her do that for quite a while. Because in the end, when she's my age, I think that's just going to do her a lot more. Yeah. That's going to do a lot more for her than the other, than anything else you could have done. Right. Not to, I don't want to be sound sadistic, and it probably does. <laughs> no, I understand what you're getting at. She's definitely going to love duck hunting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I spent most of my childhood crying because my feet were cold, man. Not most of it, but not just, I don't want to exaggerate. I spent a lot of days crying because I was cold. To, you, no, to, to no one caring. I know, no man. Caring. I wonder about that, too. I had those days, too, where I, where, but I look back on it now, and I go, why did I become a hunter? Because I was yelled at for my nose running. 
<laughs> and sniffling my nose. And I was cold. And I was yelled at for this, that, and the other. And there was just something inside of me that just like, like no matter how much that was shitty, there was some other part, the chickadees and the woodpeckers that I loved and it kept me out there. But I feel like I've heard just as many stories now because I pay attention to it about raising kids in the outdoors. And the kids are like, fuck that. Right. I just got pushed and pushed and pushed. And uh, I'm not really into hunting. Mm -hmm. I I think you got to weed them out. Those are the ones that got to be weeded out. Maybe Ridge, you got any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I do. Well, it's more of a question. I had a bunch, and then I kind of got... That was a good little combo, man. I got kind of caught up in it. Um, <laughs> one of the questions that I had earlier was, like, do you think... And I don't know if mastery is the right word, but when you... Mark, when you were saying that, like, you got all these ideas about, like, what to do next on the next hunt, and you're, like, a really good whitetail hunter, do you... Like, do you feel like you'll ever get to a point where you, like are mastering this kind of hunting and I like that can't, that's not like, you know, there's, there's so many variables when it comes to animals that it's like, that's not really like a fair word, but do you think you'll get to the point where you just like have it just like, you'll know where something's going to be when, or I think that anyone who is really, really good at whitetail hunting will always believe that they have not yet mastered it. Mm-hmm. Oh, because I think the that's a good answer, dude. Mm-hmm. I think that the, I think, you're constantly learning. It is an always evolving. I keep saying chess match, but it is. There's so many new lessons learned. I get every single year. I mean, certainly people achieve levels of consistent quote unquote success that are on a different level than a lot of people. Um, but there's always more. And that's the fun of it. That's why I think that we keep coming back to year and year and year out. Never. It's never the same. I love that. Yeah. You had 19 more things you wanted to bring up? No. No. Uh, no. Oh, the age thing about sitting in a tree. I would say that I did have a thought today or past couple of days that if the pressure of filming and not screwing up a hunt because of the filming presence, like if, if I was just sitting in a tree for 12 hours, I think I, I'd be into it. Like, I I, th- I wouldn't be bummed or stressed. You'd like it. I'd like it. How old are you? 29. Will you take me up on the hunt invitation? Which one? At your place? Yeah. Definitely, dude. Definitely. All right. I have a new freezer that I don't have anything that's empty. All right. <laughs> I have a whole fridge that has nothing in it. Okay. Then you got to make a trip up to Michigan. I'll do it. Okay. I'll do it. Let's do it. Seth? Have you said anything yet? Yeah, early. Oh, okay. Um, I shot my first buck at 12 o'clock noon, and I just remembered not wanting to be there, and I was 12 years old. But now... What time did you... And you had been up there since daybreak? Yeah, since it was it was an all-day sit. So you were sitting till noon at 12 years of age? Because my dad was like, you're sitting all day. <laughs> and now look, look at, at you, you now you're a big time hunter and that was the last very last day of the rifle season and you were a hunter trapper yep i I, guess, I love sitting all day now 27 27 yeah so you had a mean- it's a little little tough to do like 
first week of the season. I, I mean, I don't, I don't. So that won't be day. terribly effective. Yeah. So you, uh, you came from school of hard knockers. Yeah. You like it? Love it. You're glad now. I'm glad now. I'd, I'd do the same with my kids if I ever go that route. That's what. You, that's what you wind up struggling with, man. Because there was so much stuff that I hated about my dad. And the older I get, the more I'm like, man, I kind of see now where he was coming from. Yeah. I kind of see where he's coming from. And one of the biggest things he had is he was not interested in being friends with his kids. <laughs> and I used to I'd be just baffled by that. And now I'm like, I kind of see what you're getting at. I just kind of see. Because he's now. dead anyway. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to die. I think you're going to be good friends with me. Go be friends with your friends. That's true. Yeah. Mark, any concluders? Um, you know, I'm lacking any kind of terribly poignant concluder today, except for uh, I'm really glad that you guys got to come up here and do this one. It was fun to, to get to share my passion with you guys a little bit um, and, you know, teach you guys about scent control, which I appreciate the effort, but it was... It was subpar. Still, I I, I saw <laughs> <laughs> you saw some major. I saw some major infractions. <laughs> yeah, well, here's some, okay. Can we bring this up next time we talk? Yeah, major infractions. Yeah. And you pay for them, and you pay for them. Yeah, and and Mark is Mark has a lot of things he does, and Mark admits I don't know uh, what they all work, but if I do all of them, and it makes a ten percent chance. I'll just keep doing them all. Yeah, that's a, that's a big enough. Yeah, exactly. That's enough to help. I was skeptical at the beginning of the week. Now, after seeing all these deer hit that wall, I'm like, okay, I get it, dude. Yeah. Then so we had. Me, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to. Okay, so we had a number of different incidents where we got winded, even though I was doing a lot of things that I try to do. But it was definitely a compromised scent control regimen. Just it wasn't perfect. Given all the different things going on, twice as much smell. Twice as much smell. Um, I'm just a really smelly guy. I think that was it. Lauren might be a smelly guy. Wears very loud jackets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're not going to get away with with your scent all the time. But just last week, I had a five and a half year buck go downwind of me and not hit a wall at all. So sometimes taking all of these precautions does help. Um, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does, but I'm willing to do it all the time to get those few times where it does. Yeah. I'm all for it, dude. Yeah. Nothing you're doing. There's, there's nothing you're doing about scent control. That's, that was like something I hadn't uh, heard of, or, I mean, it's all like pretty much industry, not industry standard, but like you don't have like, what you don't have, uh, weird, like magical things you think. I wish I did. No, I mean you have things that like are like very practical things. You don't have like um I find that if I you know eat celery 3 days before and then do a cleanse, you know, it's just good stuff. Yeah. Like it's very similar to what fur trappers would do. Yeah. Fox trappers. I was surprised though no sense of any sort that you're you saying use. Like, a, like a cover scent or a Yeah, or yeah. attractant scent? No. It's illegal though now in Michigan to use any kind of natural um, urine-based scent or anything. So that's... I, I never used them before, but... Really? You can't buy... What is it? Tink 69? Tink 69. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can buy it, I think, still. 
You can't Say use that in Michigan. Can't use it because of chronic wasting disease. Really? Can I give my concluding thought? Yes, please. Uh, my concluding thought is if one wanted to go find all kinds of um, awesome merchandise, Meteor podcast stuff, soon to be Wired to Hunt merchandise, all kinds of t shirts. Um, your blout shirt. We got some amazing other new stuff coming out. And then a uh and if you've been watching the new episodes of the show on Netflix and you see like cool shit there, first light apparel, we have all this stuff for sale. Um go to the meateater.com and go into the store and check it out. That's my first concluder. Second concluder was I thought that was pretty good deep fried turkey. Mm-hmm. Very good deep fried turkey. Deep fried good. turkey nuggets. Where's that turkey from? Matt's freezer. Matt's Matt's freezer. freezer. You just found a wild turkey in there? <laughs> Two rests. Two lobes. I like that, man. Two lobes. Deep fried turkey chunks. Hard to beat. It's Guy's birthday. A little sweet, sweet chili sauce. <laughs> Happy birthday, Guy. Happy birthday, oh, Guy. Yeah. Thank hope you, you, guys, en- birthday? hope you enjoyed birthday that right birthday. Now? How old are you? Dinner. 175. That's why you can make that turkey call. <laughs> How old are you? 49. Huh. Happy birthday, Halfway guy. to 96. Halfway. <laughs> That's a rough way to position it. <laughs> <laughs> Oldest guy in the room. That's it. Do still that turkey got, purr again. Still got my hair. <laughs> Just hit me one more turkey purr. <laughs> I love that shit. Man. <laughs> Yanni. Thanks for asking. Thought you never get to me. Big <laughs> big room of people. Um I was thinking if you wanted to become a better white tail deer hunter, you should go check out Wired to Hunt. Because anything and everything you ever want to know about whitetails and more. It's all there. That's, that's, right, that's what I wanted to bring. I meant to bring that up. I'm glad you brought that up because Mark talks about this shit all the time. Yes. And all that stuff now is actually on the meateater.com website, though, Yanni. Mm-hmm. So you go to the meateater.com and you're going to see all my new content. With Wired to Hunt Podcast, is available anywhere you find podcasts. The, way, the Wired to Hunt Podcast is available anywhere you find podcasts. My video series is on the website and on our YouTube channel regular blog posts, and the Wired Hunt merchandise is not soon to be available on the store. It is actually on the store as of right now. Oh, it is? It is. Oh. So you got Wired Hunt hats, Wired Hunt t-shirts, and uh, there'll be some new things coming down the road. How come I don't have one of those? It's weird that you've never given me one. I didn't. Well, I don't know. (laughs) You'd be like, I feel like you should present one to me. Um, (laughs) What the hell, Mark? What uh, on Wired to Hunt podcast? What would you say? Like, what percent of the time are you guys talking about like whitetail stuff? Oh, ninety-seven percent. Ninety-seven percent. What's yeah. the other three? Yeah, like one one episode a, a year, I'll go on an elk hunt or something. One episode a year, we'll talk turkeys. Um, no marital marital advice. Uh well, there's little bits of marital advice and family advice sprinkled within each episode. Usually, give me a piece of marital advice. Oh, uh, gosh. How long you been married? Uh. uh <laughs> uh, advice number one: No, you're. I got married in 2013, so just over five years. All right, give me lay, lay um, one on me. Lay one on me. Yeah, my best piece of marriage I'm advice. Rate it. All right, I, and I stole this from someone else, That's but fine. it is it is uh, peace before justice. You stole that from Randy Newbert. Yeah, I told you I stole it from someone. Yeah, but uh-huh. that's the best advice I ever got. I stole my piece from Giannis. 
What's that? It's a good one. My best piece of marital advice. Okay, yeah. when you're fighting <laughs> with the missus or yeah. the, or the or the mister. Okay, let's say you're in a fight. Let's say you're like uh, you're fighting over. Give, give me something people fight about. Whether you, Hunting, how, how to load the dishwasher. Who fights about that? Steve. Yeah. Well, not how to load it, but whether it should be loaded at all. There's a book about marriage. It's called Marriage. It's it's got a name. It's like it's about a, it's a polemic. It's like it's about marriage. Is marriage worth it? And there's a line in the book where the author says, uh, "Marriage is an institution that makes it so you cannot load the dishwasher in the way that makes the most sense to you." <laughs> Cynical, right? Uh-huh. However, okay, let's say you're fighting about uh, the dishwasher. Here's another example: the color of the paint that you're going to put in the newly remodeled bathroom. Yeah, you're fighting about the color of the paint in the bathroom. Because you got, you've always pictured in your head that it's just going to like be ah, white, right? Everybody paints their bathroom white. And maybe it's not necessarily a fight, but it's like a heated discussion and it's getting towards being a fight just because someone might be tired. Someone else might be thinking about hunting. Yep. Are, you get, are you feeling me? <laughs> you feeling feeling you. You're feeling me. You're are. not like fighting, fighting. There you are. Right, you're doing a remodel and it's time yes. to get the paint. And you're, you're kind of sitting there like, ah, I think it should be white. And in, uh, the, in the name of managing... Just, your relationship. Do you want to give the advice? You're the one who gave it to me. <laughs> no, I'm, I just no, I just want to co-host this. He's playing. So, <laughs> he's the color commentator. So you're like, one. it should be white, you know, because that's what I, that's what I got in my head is white. And and um, your partner is. Oh, I was thinking it'd be blue. And then pretty soon you're like, you're in it, and you're fighting yeah. about it. Yeah. Giannis's thing is, you then need to say. You break the fight for a second, and you rate on a one to ten. Not how much you care to win, but you rate on one to ten how much the issue actually matters to you. And is this a verbal, like you yes. say to each other, "Hey, time out." Yep. How much does this actually matter to you? Yeah. You and, say this to your wife. Yeah, and, and then you'll, you say how much matters to you. You'd be like, you know. It's or a you three. just throw the number out before you even ask. So you just say you just go four. three. <laughs> That's where me and my wife are at now. We we've been using this to great effect. Wow. And I don't need to say. I'll just say like, this is a, this is a seven for me, man. And she's like, this is a seven for you. This is like a three for me. That means you win. Huh. Damn, that's good. I like. And that. you wind up because I wind up being in these. I wind up being in these fights with my wife. About. Things that once I stop and think about it, it's I'm fighting about things that are twos and threes because you just get so wrapped up in like the, you get so wrapped up in just like winning battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And I have in, in the other day, like there's this there's this rug that that, that doesn't all it does is like trip. Every kid that runs through the house gets laid up by this tripping on this rug. <laughs> this like skitter across the floor and smash into the wall. And one day I like roll the rug up. My wife's like, "How under the rug?" I'm like, "I got." The, the, rug's gone and she wants the rug back and i'm like dude this is like a way i'm i'm, I'm going so far as to say this is the seven or eight this is a seven or eight on me and she's like it's like a one i'm annoyed that you took my rug but really when i think about it i really don't it's a one i don't know why i'm arguing with you but if you hate the rug you hate the rug it's cool wow that's that seems like a life change good marriage advice man it's quite simple i like that a lot noted it's going to get me another five more years of marriage. 
Can I give you one more? Please. Um, when there's like a, a, a large decision that, be, that needs to be made and the decision is made of a, of a big, great bundling of interests, say you're buying a house. I have found, my wife and I have found that it works really good if I say, here's the parts of this that I care about. I, I care about this element of this and I care about this element of this. You run the project. All, everything that I'm not mentioning right now is, is you, but do not screw me on these two things. And then you run and go. And assigning ownership of something and, and clarifying like, but you own it, but here's the deal. And this is an instance where the other person wants as much ownership as possible. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to relinquish it because you don't want to get screwed on a couple points. Right. Clarify the points and then give the person autonomy to go do what they need to do. Yeah. It's a big, oh, vacation, vacation, vacation. Be like, listen, man, I want to be able to spearfish. That's all. That's all. That's all. I need to have like relatively good access to some spearfishing. Other than that, I'm out. Google Walt Disney World slash Spirit. Do the two come together? That's good stuff. Yeah. Guy, you've been married a long time. 23 years. Give me a hot marriage advice. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, married to the best woman on the planet, and she's put up with a lot for me, but... uh, I love her to death. I'm sure she'd trade me in, but I wouldn't trade her for nothing. And, uh, yeah, it's, marriage is work. It's hard work. It's hard work, but when you truly work at it, you know, we have kids, but you know, we love our kids to death. But uh, we've really grown to love each other, too. No. Women are awesome. Awesome. You know, my... Sorry. I don't mean to mm. jump on the rest of your advice. That's I just it. Shut up was it. When, uh, before my wife and I got married, she had, I can't remember, I guess it's a bridal shower or something like that. And um, everyone was asked to write down their like their best piece of advice, what marriage advice or something, on a note. And you put the notes in the thing. And then after we got married, she got to open up the box and, and read everybody's marital advice. And... I think I either saw some or she showed me some of them, and she showed me what her grandma had wrote to her. And at the time, what her grandma wrote was it was very simple. It was just two words, three words. Um, and I thought, oh, like that's just like the laziest answer. And at the t- that's all I thought of it. So that was just like a really lazy answer. And then my wife though took that pic- that little post-it note and she put it on the picture of her grandma and grandpa, and it's still like in her bathroom, like sitting on the counter. And now years later, I see it like every time I happen to be in there, I see it. And I think about it a little bit more each time. And now when I look at it and I think about it, I think about maybe what she meant by this three words. It's very poignant. And it's, it just simply says her very best marital advice was simply Big love. Big giant box. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be good, though. <laughs> it was simply love each other. Yeah. Just love each other and all that goes into that. So I see that now like every day and it just, it's kind of like, yeah, 
if, if you're thinking about that with all the different decisions you make, that is kind of the key. Like just to remind yourself too. Yeah. You know what? It, uh, you know what I did. This is marriage advice. You know what I did when my kids were born, for all three of them, is I uh, wrote them a big long letter that explains our lives, where I think they were conceived, what the circumstances, what our lives look like, what are my sort of apprehensions about them coming into the world, what are my hopes and fears for them what's going on in general, what their parents were like. And then I uh, put my own address on them. And then on the day they were born, I dropped them so they would get postmarked. And then I took them and vacuum sealed them in my uh, Pro 2300, I think. <laughs> vacuum sealed them, and I'll give them to them when they get married probably. That's cool. That's amazing. Metal. Big long letters. I I I I I I almost would dread seeing what's in the letter from eight years ago. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Do you regret anything that you wrote in these letters, or I don't want to know because I don't want to chicken out and not give it to them. Yeah, because they're very telling. It'd be a lot better if I was dead. They're very telling. Interesting. Like I would want. Uh, it would be smart to read it by yourself. Where did you get this idea? This just came to you, or? No, I don't think I made it up, man. I can't remember, but I don't think I made it up. I feel like if I made it up, I'd be pretty proud of having made it up, and I'd remember making it up. Yeah, it's, it's good. I don't know why you never chicken shit out about it. Oh, I'm not going to, man. I got a lot of effort. The difference between you and you eight years ago is so different. No, because they're really like, they're really, really telling. Of what? Of who you, and what For you instance, were eight years ago? Yeah, just like stuff like around, uh, we had two kids, and that was all we wanted at the time and we had a third and telling someone that story i wouldn't tell him that story when he's eight like what was going on in our lives what led us to the decision i don't know just telling stuff i think your kids will be smart enough to read it in the voice of you as a late 30 or as the late 30 year old and not the 60 year old you'll be when they read it yeah i hope so if it was a good letter they're pretty good letters I don't doubt it. Put a lot of effort in writing them damn letters. Is that it? That's it, man. Uh, got one more guy. Thanks, man, for making a fantastic hunting spot, man. I got to see a lot of deer uh, activity and and what am I trying to say? Things that they do, behavior, behavior that in all my years of whitetail hunting, I had never seen. Yep. All kinds of deer peeing on their tarsal glands and <laughs> scrapes. Didn't see any rubs happening, but no. Yeah, I saw scrapes, no rubs. The licking branch thing multiple times. Uh, you guys heard a fight. Yep. I got to see a buck come up and rub its orbital gland on the licking branch, work a scrape, piss down his leg. A couple minutes later, maybe more than a couple minutes later, another buck came. Didn't do his orbital gland, but worked the scrape, pissed down his leg, and then I got to a couple minutes later watch a doe come and camp out on that spot. Nice. That's seeing some deer type shit going on, man. Grunting. I bet you I heard, heard at least grunts. a dozen, maybe twenty grunts this week. Fighting, grunting. 
chasing squirrels every which way. Normally, when you see, I don't care if it is November 10th in Michigan, when you see a deer running, you're like, oh, God damn it, no, no. But here, you're like, oh. It must be a buck coming, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's running crazy. from other it's bucks. A good it's, a good thing. it's really cool. Uh, it's really cool, like the just the wildlife habitat work here and watching it like bloom and take shape, man. And we're just getting started. And I, I mean, it's been a pleasure having y'all here. And I would like to know any and all things you guys think we might be able to do to make things a better experience. Cut yeah. more shooting lanes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's how you get it killed, but you're kind of focused on getting it alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't worry, I'll be I'll be trimming lanes here soon. <laughs> All right everybody, thanks for listening. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.